Today's reading is in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. It is the last book of the Old Testament. It is also on page 801 of the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. Malachi chapter 2, 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, it's a joy to be with you today, worshiping the one true and living God. And I'll ask you now to take your Bibles and keep, open them, reopen them maybe. Um, but let's get back on the same page in Malachi. We're going to continue this morning our Advent series in this great book. And uh, we're calling this series of sermons, The Airing of Grievances because this prophecy is structured around a number of complaints that the Lord has against his people. Uh, this is a people that he has purchased for his own possession. Uh, these are uh, a people that he has chosen out of all of the nations of the world, and he's made very great and precious promises to them. And despite all of that, Israel's history, as you know, is marked by long periods and repeated periods of faithlessness and disobedience. And because of their covenant breaking, the Lord God often brought judgment and discipline into the life of that nation. And this would come in the form of plagues or military defeat and even exile. Now, the time in which this prophet Malachi ministered, the people of Israel had, by the grace of God, recently returned from exile. And they had been able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and, most importantly, to rebuild the temple, which is the place where God was pleased to dwell among his people. But already, 
And this is just within a matter of years, a few years. The people are slipping back into their old patterns of sin and disobedience. Their worship had become stale and routine. God's word was being watered down by the priests and others who ministered. And social relationships were deteriorating very quickly. So I'm describing life among the people of God uh, circa 430 BC. But if I had to describe America in AD 2022, I don't know that it would sound all that different. I wonder, can you relate at all to descriptions of spiritual apathy, um, worship that's a mere going through the motions? Can you relate anyone in here to broken relationships? And maybe you're cringing because you're already sensing that this is going to be a bit of a bleak sermon. And maybe you're thinking, Pastor, can't you just lighten up a bit? Uh, it's Advent season, for goodness sake. We've got these nice poinsettias and candles, and it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. Why do you always have to harsh people's mellow with talking about sin? Well, because that's the only way that we will truly understand why this is the hap happiest season of all, right? I understand the urge to, to focus on the great light that has appeared, but I think it's first necessary to understand that we are a people who walk in darkness. Now, this might be uh, TMI, but I'm scheduled for my first colonoscopy this week. All right, I've hit that age, and uh, some of my friends have been giving me tips about the prep and the procedure and sharing stories, as people are wont to do. One of my pastor friends told me that a few years ago, when he had his done, he, he actually woke up from the anesthesia before the doctor was done the procedure. And he happened to wake up and look at the monitor just in time to see a bright green blob on the screen. And it was, it was glowing. It looked like it had an orb around it. And he heard the doctor say, what is that? <laughs> Which is not exactly what you want to hear a doctor say. But then my friend remembered that the day before, it was a Sunday, he had gotten up to preach, but he forgot that he had a piece of gum in his mouth. And so he swallowed it quickly, and there it was on the screen, <laughs> shining brilliantly. And the doctor took a picture of it and gave my friend a copy. And it's a picture, by the way, that he shows widely and proudly, almost like it's a picture of his grandkid. Anyway, I say all of that to say that, yes, Jesus is the light of the world, and it's exactly right that we would want to focus on him this season, but at the same time, his light, I think, is going to shine the brightest when it's seen against the, the dark, dank sewer 
that is our society first and foremost, but most fundamentally that is our own soul. We, we certainly want to see the gospel glow this season, but that requires that we first have to fish the, the camera through some nooks and crannies of our inner man. And it's not, it's not very pretty. And uh, Malachi is just the doctor that we need. I'll abandon this analogy at this point. I <laughs> now, it's, it's this, I just think I'm trying to get you to see that it's important that, that we see how this um, prophecy progresses. Okay, because our sin follows a very similar pathway. The first few grievances that have aired, they all have to do with people's relationship with the Lord. Okay, so this will be just a little bit of a summary in case you've missed some of our times together in Malachi. But what we've seen is that despite the fact that God loves this people with an everlasting, electing love, they were cynical about his love. And furthermore, the people were not honoring him as God. They did not fear him. They didn't give him obedience. And this showed up in their worship, of course. Their, their liturgy was lame, as we said. And literally so, you know, they were offering to the Lord animals that were crippled or blind or blemished in some way. Now, if you spend any time with uh, Jerry Varney, You'll know that he's always busting out with these hilarious sayings from eastern Kentucky. And one of my favorites is, if he's fixing something for you, and it's, it's pretty good, but not perfect, Jerry will say, good enough for who it's for. <laughs> Gail doesn't like that. I love it. But, th but that was precisely the attitude that these Israelites had when they, came, they come to church with these offerings and they, they plop this lamb that's got long limbs and knocked knees and they throw it on the altar and say, good enough for who it's for. Except they weren't saying it with a twinkle in their eye like Jerry does. They were dead serious. That's what they thought of the Lord. And the priests weren't any better. They, they had failed to walk with the Lord, as we saw. They failed to give honor to him and to his name by offering pure sacrifices and by accurately proclaiming the word of the Lord. So the, these are all egregious breaches and, and broken relationship that occurs between God and his people. And now as we come to the end of chapter 2 and move into chapter 3, the complaints are going to have more to do with the ways that people are mistreating each other. So that's, that's the progression so far, okay? Crimes against God and crimes against humanity. And as we move today into breakdowns in our relationship with other people, I just want to warn you, not to think of these as two unrelated categories of sin. And that's often how we think, don't we? we? We like to put things in their place and compartmentalize things. And we understand uh, that we have relationships on two different planes. We have a vertical relationship uh, between us and God. And then we have a horizontal, a bunch of horizontal relationships with other people. 
And uh, as a subset of, of our horizontal relationships would be our relationship to the body of Christ, the people of God. But the, the way that we sometimes think about these is pretty whack, right? So, for example, we, we view these as, as totally separate and unrelated. The way that I think about and relate to God has nothing to do with the way that I think about and relate to you. And something else that we do is to, is to think of our sin in a very privatized, individualized, very American way. Okay, I, I think... So, so, for example, I think that I can indulge in a particular sin over here, and that has absolutely nothing to do with you. And it has absolutely no effect on, say, my brothers or sisters in the body of Christ. That's just my own deal. That's my own thing that I'm working through. But the Bible teaches something completely opposite. First of all, Scripture shows us everywhere that our relationship with the Lord is intimately connected with our relationship to our fellow man. For starters, you've got to understand that it's impossible to have peace with other people if you don't first and most fundamentally have peace with God. And furthermore, the interrelatedness of our relationship with God and our fellow man is built right into the structure of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever notice this but the law has two tables those commandments are you can kind of split them into two and the first half are commands that have to do with our how we demonstrate our love for God and the latter half of those commands outline how it is that that we live in such a way as to love our neighbor whenever Jesus was asked about what the greatest commands were out of all of the hundreds of them that were outlined in the Old Testament, they would quiz Jesus and ask him, what was the greatest? And Jesus, whenever he answered that, was very hard-pressed to just mention one. Of course, he would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and strength and soul. But then he'd say, but the second is, is like it, and it comes connected to it, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The, the Apostle John writes about the impossibility of separating love for God and love for others. He says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that if anyone says, I, I love God and hates his brother, well, you can just know right off the bat that that guy's a liar because that's impossible given the interrelatedness of our relationships. And I could go on and on about how these relationships on these two different dimensions are related and intimately connected in scripture, but this introduction is already probably too long. I just bring that up at the outset because I think that it's a helpful diagnostic. Are your relationships with other people, maybe a coworker, uh, a classmate, a family member? Are those relationships strained? Are they hostile? Well, there's, there's probably a number of ways that you can analyze what might be going on there, but the most fundamental sort of analysis would be to ask, 
and I think profitably so, what's my relationship with the Lord like? And on the other hand, if your relationship with the Lord seems strained and lifeless and fruitless, if his word isn't having the same kind of impact on you that, that it needs to be and that it has been in the past, if you're not truly communing with the Lord at his table, if you've kind of grown at this prospect of having to come out again on a Sunday evening for, for the Lord's Supper, if, if your prayers are, are, they seem pointless, if your worship is weak, your problem could very well be, the Bible indicates, that you have some unresolved issues with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe your wife. Our passage today gives us an opportunity to dig deeper into this idea of the interconnectedness of, of all of these relationships, the vertical ones, the horizontal ones. And in, in our passage, the Lord, through his prophet Malachi, identifies two major problems that he has with them. And so there's going to be something wrong um, vertically, there's a problem. He has a problem with us. That, that relationship is, is broken. But it turns out that that complaint, that problem, happens to be a marriage problem. In other words, it's, it's problems that we have on the horizontal level. Now, as we, see, as we will see in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, um, there, there's lots more issues that the Lord God has with the people of Israel and their treatment of their fellow man. But the Lord puts his finger first on their marriage problems. Uh, he, he wants to tease out, first of all, the, the faithlessness that's happening in their own families. And I think the reason that he does this is because it's most basic. Marriage is relationship 101. Okay, even in scripture... Marriage happens as early as Genesis chapter 2. It's a, it's a building block. And here in Malachi 2, there are strong allusions, I think, to that first and fundamental of all human relationships that we read about in Genesis 2. So God says to this people, you're failing basically first grade. Well, that's a, that's a very long introduction but I hope, I hope that'll make it so that we can move through the text pretty quickly, okay? Even though in terms of textual issues and translation issues, this is one of the trickiest stretches in all of the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, almost every verse is debated about how to best interpret it. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can kind of uh, rise above all of those debates and and just see because I think the good thing about this is that I think it's fairly straightforward despite all of that what the Lord wants us to understand so here's kind of the structure if you look at the beginning of verse 13 it says and this second thing that you do the second thing which implies that the first thing is outlined in verses 10 to 12 and as I said, we, we discover in this passage that the Lord is addressing two marriage problems. 
which are not just wreaking havoc on, you know, in people's family relationships, but these are coming between them and the Lord. And they also wreak havoc on the congregation, relationships with the other people of God. So two problems, two marriage problems that the Lord deals with in this passage. And the first is intermarriage, and the second is divorce. And we are asked to look at both of these from three different angles. To look at them, um, first of all, in their covenant context. Second, to, to kind of view them with the heinousness of them highlighted. And then, finally, in terms of their ruinous results. Okay, we want to see... We want to look at two marriage problems, intermarriage and divorce, and each of them we want to run it through some different filters and see how the text has us look at these in terms of their covenantal context, with their heinousness highlighted, and in terms of their ruinous results. So that's, that's our outline. That's, that might sound like a complicated outline, but I believe that we'll be able to kind of work through all of this material um, pretty pretty easy. But in order to move faster, this is still my introduction, sorry. I, I, I do want to just say, the thing that will help us be able to move faster is if you allow me to just preach the text that's in front of me and preach it the way that it comes to us. And what I mean by that is that for both, you know, for both of these marriage problems, intermarriage and divorce, we can find more nuanced teaching about those things elsewhere in Scripture. Okay, we we can, you know, we can turn to the Apostle Paul, for example, and find out how to live in um, intermar in an intermarriage, and it we 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 understand from him how we might live faithfully when this problem is created after we've been married, when one of the spouses is converted to Christ. And also in the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he'll be able to speak of the permissibility of divorce in a very specific situation. And Jesus himself is going to give uh, an exception about Divorce and remarriage, I believe. And so all, all I'm saying is, yes, uh, the Bible has lots to say on this topic, and we can certainly uh, delve into all of these things, but I'm asking you today to simply allow me to speak about intermarriage and divorce the way Malachi does, which is to, to say these things in an expansive and unqualified way, and hopefully a a challenging sort of a way. And, and my aim here is not that, that you would feel any kind of false guilt, but my aim is that kind of by the starkness of this message that there would be room for true conviction and that that would result in genuine change. So you ready? Okay, intermarriage. What do we, what do we mean by intermarriage? Well, we mean the scenario that's spelled out in the end of verse 11. It says, Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
And simply put, we're talking about whenever a child of God marries someone with completely different religious commitments. We're not talking about marriage that takes place between people of, you know, two different skin colors or ethnicities. That's not the problem. The problem is not having a spouse that's a foreigner. It's having a spouse who's devoted to a foreign god. In the image and in, in imagery and in, in the language of the New Testament, you know, this, this issue has to do with unequal yoking. This, this is, we're talking about the scenario when you hitch yourself to a partner who is pulling in the opposite direction, spiritually speaking. And in these first few verses, there's a lot of reference made to Judah. Um, the, the term, just by saying Judah, that's one way that the prophet can kind of refer to the whole people of Israel, individually and as a group. So it's handy in that way. He, he says Judah has been faithless. Judah has profaned the sanctuary. Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. And in this way, he's, he's, it sounds like he's speaking about one person, but actually he's talking about a habitual thing that's going on with many in the community. But I think his reference is entirely appropriate. It was almost exactly a year ago, if you can believe it, that we were in Genesis chapter 38, and we were following the actual Judah, son of Jacob, down to Adullam. And this, this was the land of the Canaanites. And we, followed, we saw that, that he was going down to that place, and, and that meant more than just a geographical descent. That had to do with a, a spiritual decline as well. Judah had deliberately chosen to leave the people of God and, and to leave the place of God and to attach himself to godless Canaanites. He becomes buddies with a guy named Hiram. And then he marries a woman who's the daughter of another buddy, a Canaanite named Shua. Now, marrying a Canaanite was expressly forbidden by God. He, he spoke very clearly and strongly about this. And consequently, it was something that Judah's father and grandfathers were firmly against. And they made pains to make sure that their, their sons would go and, and find spouses that are have the same commitments but judah doesn't have these same scruples as his forebears the only thing that seems to matter to him is that shua's daughter was hot and i'm not you know that the the passage says that so it, I'm, that's not me just making that up the text makes a point of saying that and the text also very tersely tells us that judah saw her he took her to be his wife, and then he took her. And the result of that marriage was a series of three incredibly wicked sons. Judah was meant to be a cautionary tale. But here we are, generations later, and the descendants of Judah are pulling the same stunt. And it seems over and over and over again, marrying the daughters of foreign gods. That's intermarriage, and that's a huge problem. We can see how huge of a problem it is if we see it in light of those three things that I mentioned. First, consider intermarriage in the light of 
the covenant, just in that context of covenant. Malachi begins verse 10 by asking rhetorically, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And the answers to that are, are obvious. The implications ought to be very, very clear. First of all, I want you to notice that, that important word, one. One. It's repeated, actually, throughout the passage. And right off the bat, you know, the knowledge that God is one and that there is only one God ought to immediately demonstrate the folly of entertaining any hint of idolatry, let alone marrying into it. But the main thing that Malachi is doing with these opening rhetorical questions is to call the people into remembrance of the covenant, the fact that they are in a covenant relationship with this one true and living God. He's their creator. And not just in the general sense, like he's created everybody, no, in the special sense that he's created them as a, as a nation. He's constituted them as his people. And we owe our very existence as a holy nation to this one God. He's our father in this respect. We are sons and daughters of the most high God. And given that covenantal context, think of how unbelievably treacherous it is to unite ourselves to the sons and daughters of some foreign god. Let's continue in the same vein as we consider how this text highlights the heinousness of this particular sin. And for to, to really feel the weight of this, you need to understand this basic fact, okay? It's found in verse 11. The Lord loves his sanctuary. This is the place of his dwelling. This is where his people assemble. This is, where, this is where his people lift up holy hands to him and they bring offerings of, of sacrifice and thanksgiving. Offerings which the Lord loves to receive and pour out his blessing on these people and instruct them in his word and in his ways. That's what God loves. But in verse 11, we're alerted to the fact that an abomination has been committed. The sanctuary of the Lord has been profaned. And I want you, you need to understand that words like abomination and profane, these are extraordinarily strong words. And they invoke images that would readily come to people's minds when they heard them. Images of unholy people doing ungodly things in and to God's dwelling place. It's behavior that you would expect of some pagan army that's invading you to desecrate the temple, to profane it, to commit abominations in it. But here's the first surprise of the passage. This is not done by pagans. It's done by God's own people. Judah has committed abomination. And thus, it's the highest form of treachery against his covenant, against his people. That's what the word faithless, by the way, which is another word that is used repeatedly throughout this passage, that's what that means. Faithless means treacherous. It, it's, it's Benedict Arnold kind of behavior. 
And here's the second surprise. I love the dramatic way that Malachi is presenting the problem. Because when we hear that there's been a desecration, an abomination in the sanctuary of the Lord, think, when we hear that there's been something utterly profane, we think of th this must be something particularly heinous, like Caligula trying to erect a statue of himself in the temple, or Antiochus, you know, offering a pig on an altar that he constructs to Zeus in God's temple. It's that kind of desecration. So, so we, you know, we hush our voices and we ask Malachi, well, what did he do? What on earth did Judah do? And Malachi responds, he married an unbeliever. Now, I want you to check yourself just right here, okay? Just, if you could just freeze and study your reaction to that. It's a fresh reaction. I trust it's an authentic one. Is your reaction to that, really? That, that's all he did? That's not that big of a deal. And if that's your reaction, then you would do well to know just how out of step your thinking about this sin is from God's. Maybe even some of you are here today contemplating doing the same thing. You know, there's hardly any godly single guys around. So wouldn't it be better... Maybe it's not that big of a deal to go out with this guy from work who's really sweet and seems really into me. And I'm sure I can influence him for the good. And, and you can easily come up with a bunch of justifications. These Israelites had them. You know, at that time, in that place, it was very advantageous for them to enter into, you know, political or economical alliances by marriage. So lots of valid reasons if you're looking for them, but they don't amount to a hill of beans because the one true and living God, the God that you claim to have as your father says it's profane, it's an abomination. That's the same word that he'd use if you decided to marry someone of the same sex. And thus it comes with ruinous results. And this is the third lens through which we're invited to consider intermarriage. Consider its ruinous results. Here they are in verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Wait, who brings an offering? I thought we were talking about intermarriage. Why all this talk about bringing offerings? Why are we talking now about the sanctuary? What does my marrying someone have to do with church? That, you know, that's a private area of my life. No, it's not. If... If you're a child of God, let me, let me just say this. 
if you're a child of God, you're not a private individual. Everything that you do, everything that you say is a reflection on him and on his kingdom. Furthermore, you're in a, you're in a covenant relationship with, not just with him, but with his people. And therefore, your sin is not private. My sin is not private. It has ruinous results for the people of God. This is why Malachi can say in verse 10 that when we sin in these ways, and he spelled out the specific way, we know what he's talking about, but he says that that sin, when we do that sin, we are faithless to one another. You don't just waltz into the presence of God, into the congregation of his people with with a song on your lips and an offering in one hand and a pagan spouse on your other hand. And so the punishment for this high-handed, rebellious, treasonous sin of intermarriage is that a person's family tree ought to be chopped down like we did yesterday at All Western Evergreen. You know, took a hacksaw to the thing. And it was down. Just a, just a stump remains. And that's always, that, that phrase, to be cut off, that's always at the center of covenant curses. You're, you're going to be cut off from the visible people of God. The New Testament equivalent, I'm, I'm thankful that some of you have asked ab about this in the past. What is the relationship between discipline, church discipline, and the old covenant stuff? And this is, this is where we really see it. That the New Testament equivalent of this being cut off is church discipline for those who remain in unrepentant sin. Now, in our text, this cutting off is, is quite literal. The idea is that, that the family that this person has sought to establish in unrighteousness is going to be snuffed out. You, you, you want to build society doing it your way with, with your own choice of a pagan spouse? Well, that, that family is not going to flourish, the Lord says. And that's going to be the ruinous result of sinning in this way. And I think there may be here another allusion to Judah. You remember when he married that Canaanite woman? Do you remember what happened? They had three sons. Ur, the firstborn, he died. Onan, the secondborn, he died. Then the wife died. So limb by limb, they're cut off of Judah until only a stump remains. Now let's move on to the second complaint, the second marriage problem, which is found in verses 13 to 16. I'm talking about divorce. And so I'm talking about something that, according to statistics, hits home in a very personal way to about half of us, and eventually at some point, affects all of us, whether it's a, you know, a parent or a sibling or whatever. And so I'm broaching a subject 
that is rarely broached in church these days because of how close it hits us. You know, this is not comfortable to talk about. And I, you know, I feel all of the same kind of pressure to, to soft pedal this topic. But you have insisted that I preach the word of God as uncomfortable as it is. And uh, what's more important, God has insisted that I do that. And so I'm grateful for, for you. And you might be grateful for the fact that I don't have a whole lot of time left to talk about this topic. But I am going to talk about it. And notice that Malachi once again doesn't come immediately to the root of the problem. Rather, what he does in verse 13 is that he deals first with a symptom that we might be experiencing. And it's, it's this. I don't, I don't know a, a better way to put it, although there probably is one, but just blunted worship. You know, prayers that go unanswered. This, this nagging feeling that you constantly have of being unaccepted by God, despite all of your offering, despite your sacrifice. The perception that this pipeline between you and the Lord seems to have a major clog in it. And of course, this is terrible. It's upsetting. And so we might weep and groan and we might wring our hands and wonder why. Why is this happening? Why, why is there such a distance here? The prophet says, here's the reason. Divorce. You've been faithless to your wife. You've dismissed her. You've dealt treacherously with her. And let's look at this problem through the same three lenses. Okay, Consider first the, the covenantal context. And in this case, Malachi asks us to consider the horizontal covenant. Okay, Your marriage covenant. You realize that's what it is, right? Don't, don't listen to the culture that says it's just a piece of paper or that it's just for as long as the relationship is mutually beneficial or what they really mean, which is that even if just one party finds it, not beneficial or unfulfilling, then, then you can kind of just, you know, go your separate ways and consciously uncouple is the, is the term, I think, that Gwyneth Paltrow used of her divorce to her husband, Chris. It's, it's a load of nonsense that people give us and tell themselves and in order to appease their conscience. Don't listen to what they say marriage is. Listen to what scripture says marriage is. And, you know, when some of us gather in Louisville next weekend for the marriage of Logan and Hannah, or when many of us gather next year sometime for the marriage of Andrew and Hannah. By the way, congratulations, guys. We're very excited at your recent engagement. Uh, can't wait for that. But you, you know what's going on there, right? When we, you know what your role in all of this is if you go to these weddings. We're, we're not going there to just see a civil union or something equally as bland. We're going to witness 
be active participants in witnessing two people entering into a holy covenant with each other wherein they pledge to love each other and be committed to each other for as long as they both shall live till death do them part do they part and you know who else is witnessing that covenant verse 14 the lord and more than a mere witness it's the lord himself that's doing the joining the one God is making you two one flesh. And I think that this is a clear allusion to what God did in Genesis chapter 2 when he presides over the very first marriage and he sets that forth as the pattern by which all of our other marriages will follow. He's presided over yours as well if you're married. Not only that, but the text says, and gave a portion of his spirit in your union. Now, I told you that almost every verse in this passage is tricky to interpret, and there's like five or six different um, possibilities with each verse. And I'm here to tell you that I have almost no idea what, what that means, that he gave a portion of his spirit in your union. Uh, none of the many explanations that I've read I found convincing. But whatever else it means, it's clear that your union with your wife or your husband is a creative act of God, and it is a holy act of God. What God has joined together, let no man separate. But that's exactly the problem, isn't it? That that men are separating like crazy, and not just men. I maybe should have issued this warning earlier, but you'll notice that this passage um, speaks mainly to men, you know, as the guilty party, and they, you know, the prophet holds men accountable. And certainly in that time and in that culture, it was disproportionately the men who were divorcing their wives. And so this is good and appropriate that he would address men. But in our time in our, and in our culture, I wonder if you realize this, that women initiate divorce to the tune of 75 to 80% of the time. So, so what you need to do if this text, if this passage is going to have any effect on you, is not just to think, oh, he's talking about, they're talking about the men. Terrible, horrible men. Toxic ma masculinity. Go get them. No. Substitute yourself. Do the switcheroo if you're a woman here. And, and understand that this text is speaking to you as well. But let's go back to the example of the man as the bad actor, okay? Look at verse 14 again. Three, there's three ways, ways that the wife is described, and these, I think, highlight the heinousness of the sin of divorce. So we'll take the last one first. She's your wife by covenant. We, we've seen that, right? So that's why we take this one first. It's Divorcing your spouse is to take your marriage contract, which is not, you know, ultimately a state of the New York do document. This is, 
This is your covenant that you've made before God. It's to take that and just rip it in half and spit on it. It's a heinous breach of what you've promised, what you've committed to your husband or your wife. It's true. If it was just kind of an agreement, a a civil union or or whatever, just a piece of paper, then you're right. It's no big deal. But if it's a covenant that you've entered into, if it's a vow that you have made, calling upon God with all of his blessings and curses to witness, then that's a heinous thing that you do when you divorce your spouse. She's described as, secondly, the wife of your youth. Ideally, of course, you know, you've been with your wife since your youth. This, you know, this is, seems very different in our day, day and age, but the way that it's been for all of human society, except for the last five minutes or so, is that you get married, you know, in your teens, maybe even late teens. But as a young person, you, you, you take a wife. And um, her father gives you to her. And she, she sacrificed to you her very best years, her most beautiful years, her, her most fertile years, her healthiest years. She's been with you through thick and thin. But now you're going to cast her off in her middle age because you're done with her? Shame on you. And shame on you, woman, for building with your man for so many years and then casting him off because there's, there's a guy that you think that you can get that's younger and hipper and cooler and is more understanding. Shame on you. Look at the third way she's described. She's your companion. That's beautiful. That's, she, she's your friend. She, you know, however you understand complementarity, okay, we believe that that's the biblical model, that the man is to be the house, uh, the, the head of his house, and that male and female roles are differently. Now, however you construe that, don't ever construe that to say that that woman is like down here and she's just, you know, chattel. No, the, the biblical picture is one of oneness and unity and friendship and companionship. This, is, this woman makes Adam just lose his mind and say, whoa, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And, and you're going to forget about all of that how, how you've walked together, how you've shared together, how you have loved each other, and you're just going to cast her off. Well, there's a conclusion to all of this, and it comes in verse 16. And I'm afraid this is another one of these verses that is very, uh, has a lot of difficulties associated with it. And some of those difficulties have made more modern translators Uh, translate this a different way as we have in the ESV but I'm going to just boil it right down and I mean if you're interested we can have a conversation about all of the different options or whatever but I I really think 
that the best translation is the traditional one that has, at this point, the Lord saying, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. And you can understand why. For, for all of these reasons, this is, this is despicable in the eyes of the God who has presided over your union. And then consider the, the ruinous results. Verse 16 says that the, the person, the man that does this, covers himself in violence. The man or the woman covers himself in violence. This is, you know, you think about if you were to go into a, a department store and, and shoplift, you know, a nice new shirt or something, and then you take it home and, oh, it's got that, that stupid little pin in it, magnetic thing, so you pry it, pry it apart, and, and then suddenly poof, the whole thing is covered in ink. You've covered yourself in ink, and, and now it's very apparent to everyone that, that you're a shoplifter. Well, a person, I think that's part of what's going on here. A person that would do this, that would divorce their spouse, covers himself in violence. And again, don't listen to the culture. They say, you, you hear people say the dumbest things. Like, um, you talk about, well, what's the relationship between you and your ex-husband? You've got, you've got these precious kids. How does that all work? And, oh, we're best friends. We're still best friends. That, no, it's not that at all. Divorce is doing violence to someone. You think of this one flesh relationship. You try to pull that, that thing apart. My dad always uh, used the illustration of the hockey cards that he collected when he, was ki- when he was a kid. And I cringe because those hockey cards are probably worth thousands of dollars now. But he tells of the time when he would paste them in um, scrapbooks. And then what would happen is that the, the players would get traded to a different team or he'd want to kind of group them all differently, so he would try to peel off that card from that page and put it on another page. And you can't do it, because you're, you're, you're pulling off like pieces of paper, too. And, and my dad would always say, that's, that's what's happening when you try to break a one-flesh relationship. It's, there's shards everywhere. It's violence. Now, I, I don't want to leave you there, because that's, that's pretty heavy, pretty harsh. But let's not console ourselves by saying that the Bible says something differently. Let's console ourselves the way that the Bible would console ourselves. And the first, we're, we're grateful that Malachi gives us a, a, a very practical thing to do in light of this, in light of this temptation. And I think this would apply to to both things. This is something that Malachi repeats two different times towards the end here, so you understand how important this is. And And this is his practical advice to us. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You need to guard yourself. And, and 
I love the insight here. Guard yourself in your spirit. So, so the, the, you know, the thing that you ultimately have to do if you want to have a strong marriage and you want to preserve yourself from temptation is not to make up all of these external rules. You know, the battle for this stuff happens inside of you, in your heart and in your mind. You know how it is, how you can play out a scenario. You can play out the whole courtship and, and, and death of your spouse to make room for you to marry someone else. And you can go through the whole thing, the fantasy in your mind. And this is why Jesus also insightfully says that, you know, adultery isn't just when you commit some outward act. This is an issue of the heart. And, and the practical point for us is we need to guard our hearts vigilantly. We're not to cherish any of those thoughts. Don't, do, don't be faithless to your husband or your wife, even if they have no clue that you're not being faithless to them. Even if it's playing out in here and in here. You, you, you guard that so that you can continue to be faithful to the wife that you have covenanted with. There's all sorts of practical things that we could say, of course, about what it looks like to guard your heart, but guard your heart. And um, perhaps you can d discuss these things with a friend or with your, your small group at some point. But I want to just, before we end, move on to a more ultimate thing to do, to think about, to rest in. And, and the passage here doesn't lead us specifically here, but the whole book of Malachi certainly leads us in this direction to understand that we, we need something more than just a practical thing to do. We need an ultimate thing because we, all of us, stand here under the word of God and we are convicted we're convicted, even if we haven't intermarried or divorced, we have been faithless. And, and we understand the depravity of our own heart and how we have been unfaithful time and time again in our own hearts. And so it leads us to almost despair. What do we do? And, and what do you do? Maybe you're feeling the guilt of having been through a divorce or have, having made that decision to marry an unbeliever knowing full well that it was prohibited. What do you do? Or do you feel just so broken and defeated? No, you, you look to the one who has advented. You look to the one who has come in order to deal decisively with your faithlessness and my faithlessness. You think about that stump of Jesse. Think about that, that old tree that was right down to the, almost down to the roots. And the good news of the Bible is that there, and sometimes you can see this in, in a tree that you cut down. Sometimes you see like a sprig of life coming out of it. Well, this is what the Bible tells us that, that Jesus is. He, he comes in a line that should have been cut off for eternity. He comes in the line of Judah, and he comes for everyone in Judah's line who has failed and who's broken. 
who's a sinner through and through, who've not only intermarried and divorced, but have done every sin in the catalog multiple times. And Jesus Christ comes to offer himself in, in the place of sinners like you and I, so that we might be fully forgive, forgiven of all of our failures, all of our faithlessness. We're faithless, but praise God, Christ is faithful. And he's been faithful, and he's gone all the way to the cross for our sin, and he's gone down to the grave and then all the way back up again to heaven so that we might be fully forgiven of our high-handed rebellion and sin. Trust in Christ. Are you broken? Are you convicted? Christ is the, the, the only Savior that you have, and it's the only, he's the only Savior that you need. You find in Christ full forgiveness and full restoration. You're not a second-class citizen if you're a divorced person, if you're married to an unbeliever. You are a forgiven sinner in Christ. And then look to Christ. You want to know? You want to know how to guard your heart? You want to know how to be faithful in marriage? Christ himself sets the example. You think about Ephesians chapter 5 and how, how it teaches us to, if we're husbands, to love our wives and sacrifice, to lay down our, our lives for our wives, just like Christ has laid down his life for his church. And then if you're a wife, Christ teaches you how to submit to your husband, even if your husband is an unbeliever. Even if you're in an intermarriage, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his example, shows you that you, you can be a, a godly wife. You can, you can have unbroken fellowship with God. You can have God's favor and smile upon you by following Christ and by looking to him. Brothers and sisters, we have, we're, we're in terrible shape, but we have an unbelievably amazing Savior. And uh, we ought to, to worship him, not just this season, but with our whole lives. Amen? Amen.